Mac Power Users, episode 636, Workflows with Ryan J.A. Murphy. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. My name is Stephen Hackett and I, of course, am joined by the man who's never missed an episode, Mr. David Sparks. Man, I'm afraid I said that now. It's going to happen. It'll be like next week or something. It's totally fine. You can take a week off. Yeah. Well, anyway, thanks, Stephen. It's good to talk to you. And uh, we're really happy to have a guest with us. Welcome to the show, Ryan J.A. Murphy. Thanks. And thanks for, for hitting those two middle initials. Well, every time. I know it's your branding, so we got to get <laughs> it's, it. It's uh, it's just my parents' fault, really. Yeah. Yeah. But the uh, but Ryan is, uh, I, I think I first became aware of you, Ryan, actually in the Mac Power Users forums. But you are mm-hmm. like all over the place. Like when I started getting to Obsidian, you you've been writing plugins for Obsidian, and you you've done a lot of really cool stuff for people. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a blog over at and where did I just I wrote, forgot the name. It's got a cool <laughs> name. What is it? Uh, Axel dot design. Axel, yes, yeah. Axel yeah. A X L E dot design. Uh, and uh, and Ryan is super interested in uh, more. You know the type of stuff I call contextual computing, but Ryan's taking it to a new level and. Uh, I've just been a fan of you from afar, right? And I'm so glad you could take time to to join us today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, I mean, it's such a cool place to to be to be talking to you guys about all this stuff. Um, and uh, I only it's funny, I only found MPU uh, must have been like three years ago now. You've been running a lot longer than that. But uh, I uh, maybe we'll get into my story into getting into the Mac. But I was a Windows power user for a while. Uh, so uh, yeah. it was neat to get over here and see um, sort of what's happening in, uh, the Mac power user space, not just with the podcast, but with all the ecosystem. Um, when I first got into it a couple, uh, probably about a decade ago now. Yeah. I was just talking to somebody recently, uh, in the Max Barkey labs and I had mentioned, cause they were saying, how come you don't have a forum? I'm like, well, I think the, the MPU forum is really good. And mm-hmm. this person said, I didn't even know that existed. And it's like, I, I feel like I got to keep saying it because it's just a very loving community of nice people that, are all interested in getting the most out of their Apple tech. I, I love it when I do like a search on the web for some problem I have and the answer comes up in the Mac Power Users forums. I, that's awesome. You know? mm-hmm. So anyway, it's just a great community. I'm glad you're a part of it and, and we're really happy to have you on the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thanks for hosting both the forum and the show. <laughs> uh, today on More Power Users, we've got a very deep topic, something that we need to, to work on and it's about... Mm recipe apps there's there's a lot of action going on in recipe apps and we thought that would be fun to to dig in on today yeah but anyway uh, so ryan tell us a little bit about yourself yeah so um people probably have seen me around the web talking about tech mostly from the perspective of uh the i guess where i come from in a phd world so i'm a phd candidate uh, studying information systems um and actually information systems if, if you're not familiar with it we're all really using information systems it's uh just the ability to store information and then use it to act on the world around us um and so that kind of field that research um has me working on and very interested in how we use tech to solve problems how we use tech to augment our intelligence and that's the kind of thing that i've been posting on uh on the blog on axel.design as well as some academic workflows. Um, and I should also mention that I, I do a lot of work in systems work, systems consulting. So uh, I'm a systemic designer 
I work with groups like the World Wildlife Fund and the UN um, or the UN special uh, joint programs, I should say, was one of my recent clients on trying to understand complex problems and solve them. So I use tools like, um, well, it, it really ends up being pretty simple, tools like OmniGraphle and Miro and a web tool called Kumu to model systems and then understand them and develop strategies for change. Uh, you know, this like pushes all my buttons, Ryan. I, I just love the idea of systems thinking and I think that um, really it underlies a lot of what we do at Mac Power Users because what mm-hmm. we're trying to do is enable people listening to the show to come up with the systems that work for them. And, you know, not everything we talk about is going to resonate with everybody. But my goal is if you listen to the show long enough that you do find the system that works for you. And uh, that can be uh, applied, you know, globally like you're doing or individually. I, I don't mm-hmm. know. I just, when I understood, when I, when it started, first of all, I didn't even realize that was a thing you could do a PhD in. Of course, it makes perfect sense that you should be able to. Mm-hmm. But um, we're at this weird space now where people are becoming aware of this. You know, Tiago Forte has the second brain. And uh, we're I, we're not going to talk about Obsidian today, gang. Stephen has, <laughs> has put the, the hammer down. But, but you know, but, you know, you have things like Craft, Obsidian, Rome Research, uh, all these different, you know, kind of personal knowledge and management solutions coming up for people. And uh, I don't know. I just feel like the thing you are studying overlaps with the trend right now in such a beautiful way. Mm-hmm. We're getting right into it, are we? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I, I had to get that off my chest. And, yeah. and I also had to put it out there that I will not use the word obsidian anymore. You keep, you keep saying okay. it. No. <laughs> I, know, I know. I know. That's that's kind of the thing, right? That's the bit. Yeah. Yeah. So obsidian, I'm not going to say obsidian anymore. Okay. Because Stephen said I can't say the word obsidian. We just need a break. That's all. <laughs> We just need a little, little bit of a break. Um, you know, Ryan, one, one thing that was really interesting in talking with you in advance of the episode today was this idea of, of systems and really how, how both broad and deep the concept of systematic thinking and systematic design can go. Uh, could you give us kind of a, a working definition of, of what you mean when you're using those sorts of terms? Sure. Can I also give you an a, a innocent correction? Of course. <laughs> you, you have to be careful. And this happens. You're not alone. This happens to a lot of people. When you talk about systemic systemic thinking, um, a lot of people end up inserting that word system, systematic in. But systematic, when you think about it, really is to do the same thing over and over again. But what we're talking about when we talk about systems thinking and systemic work is to understand how all the parts intersect and interact Um and so systemic design, that field that I mentioned earlier, is the combination of systems thinking and design thinking. So it's trying to understand, um, you know, person and computer, not just person, not just computer. Um, and then through understanding the interaction of those things, come up with design solutions that can improve it. Most of the time when I do systemic design work, it's with um, problems like uh, how do we um, help uh, understand, say, the intersection of conservation and the pandemic that we're currently all in. So it's usually pretty global, but it applies on all kinds of levels, including um, the tools we use and how they how they combine and stack together. Does that make sense? Yeah. Can, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing with the UN? Yeah, uh, that was a project last year um, with my uh, partners, I guess, um, Nanad Rava and Peter Jones, one of my co-authors. And we worked to try and analyze. They had funded a bunch of projects from a number of different nations. Um, I think it was 20 or 30. And we were trying to look at how exactly those those projects were designed from a systems perspective in order to provoke systems change. 
Um, and so, yeah, we did this big analysis and there's a talk I can link to, um, about the work if other people are interested in diving in deeper. And we just heard the about, so I haven't mentioned you're Canadian. Yes, that's true. Uh, yeah. Newfoundlander actually. So I'm calling you from half, half an hour ahead of, uh, Atlantic. <laughs> that <laughs> is our own special time cool. zone. I got to yeah. get up there someday. I got to get yeah. up there. Yeah. It's lots the, of fun. Um, yeah. And, and then, so you've got the blog at Axel design and mm-hmm. Fulcra dot design. Exactly. And then you're pursuing the PhD. You're already mm-hmm. doing research in the field and, mm-hmm. and you are a fairly recent Mac nerd. Mm-hmm. Fairly, fairly recent as in, uh, 10 years probably now, but yeah, okay. it was, it was, uh, I, I, I identify as a transitioned to Mac nerd because I was a windows nerd for a long time. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know if we want to get into the, the sort of lineage of devices, um, but... Well, uh, actually, I want to hear how that happened. How did you go from Windows to Mac? There are some people who get really good at Windows and have no desire to switch because they've figured it out. Yeah, and I loved Windows. Um, what happened was very simple. Um, back when I became a computer science student, so I've got a, a weird double degree in psych and computer science, um, and I became a computer science student, I think, around twenty. 11, 2012. And at the time, Windows didn't allow you to use the Unix subsystem. Uh, there wasn't a, a Unix subsystem. And I might be misspeaking, I might be misremembering, but um, basically you couldn't do a lot of the terminal commands you'd use on Linux or on Mac on Windows. Uh, yeah. And so I had a choice. I could either you know, split off my Windows drive and install Linux and start playing around with that system. And I had never liked any Linux. It was just too fiddly for me. So I, I, I decided to go um, get a MacBook Air and that was it. <laughs> The lure of the terminal. Yeah. Terminal brought me in, and then Alfred stuck. <laughs> it's probably the, the key power tool that really um, I loved right away. I found Alfred and uh, saw what you could do with um, that and then with AppleScript and just the, the underlying layers of Mac, of Mac OS, and of uh, the Apple ecosystem just like are so uh, attractive, we'll say. Yeah, I haven't actively used Windows for something like 10 years because I used to have to use it in the day job. But eventually got away from that. But the last time I used Windows, there just weren't applications like Alfred or Hazel or like these small developer, like awesome automation style applications. They, for whatever reason, they just didn't exist on Windows. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is that still the case? I couldn't say, but I don't think. I, I think Mac, the Mac ecosystem and the Apple ecosystem overall is still way ahead. Um, yeah. I remember one of the other attractors was the iPad at the time, um, Paper. Paper by 53 had just started to get yeah. advertised and yeah. um, we're, get, we're burning through all the topics I thought we'd talk about through the whole show in this first segment. But uh, when I, uh, so I've been a tablet user since 2006 or 2005, when I was yeah. in grade 11, I actually yeah. had a tablet PC um, wow. and loved being able to use a stylus on the screen with, I think it was Windows 7 at the time. Um, and so uh, uh, we can talk about that more later, I guess. But when I saw paper and the iPad and how fluid it was, um, I just was so excited to get an iPad. So that was the other thing. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And so now at this point, are you, what kind of Mac are you driving today? I've got one of the new MacBook Pros. I- I've chronicled sort of my troubles with the iPad over the years on the forum a little bit. Um, we-, we can get into that too, but um I, for a little while there, I had a Mac mini and an iPad and I was trying to use the iPad around the house. Uh, and just like, as we've heard from you guys on the show a few times, um, I mean, really, it, it, what was I thinking? We, it, 
we were convinced, I think, all of us, by Stephen's constant advocacy for the iPad as a power power device, right? <laughs> Stephen, you just won't stop talking about how much yeah, you use yeah. the iPad. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I I, I I had been convinced to try um, using the iPad around the house and uh, by, by all the cool things that I'd heard about. And it just like wouldn't stick in terms of doing some of the simple things. So when the announcement came for these M1s, um, I've got an M1 Max in this machine, 64 gigs of RAM, and I was just like so fast. You know, you know the time after the the uh, keynotes when the store is still closed, um, and you're just trying to get in and, and make a purchase. I had it open on like three or four different devices. I think I bought two at the same time and canceled one. Like I was so keen to get yeah. away from the the Mac Mini and to pick up a laptop again. So did you go with the 14 or the 16? Uh 16. Okay, and how do you yeah. like it? Oh, it's a dream. It really is. Um, I had a 2015 before. I skipped the butterfly keyboard era, um, and uh, it was getting uh, a bit hot, we'll say, the the old MVP I had. So um, this thing is a dream. So powerful, so fast, so quiet. Yeah, I'm I'm in the middle of writing a blog post. So I'm just kind of like a check-in on having this, this laptop now for, what, six months. And, uh, man, I just can't get over how good the screen is. I feel like we don't give that enough time on the show but the screen on the new macbook pros are just amazing i make the mistake of keeping it closed most of the time but i'm using it right now and it is uh, so crisp and so so huge it is really really nice so you're you're using it with an external display yeah i've got it hooked up to um it's actually called a oh no i forget the name of it it's a samsung um it folds flush against the wall a samsung space monitor that's what it's called um, and it's, it's pretty wacky. It's kind of lately I've been noticing it. Um, if it's not pushed right up against the wall, it's pretty wobbly. So I'm kind of annoyed with it from that perspective, but it can get really close to you if you want to, I don't know, uh, adjust or it can go far away. It's, it adjusts on an angle in a weird way. Um, and so it's it otherwise got a nice, um, low profile bezel and it, it is a nice display. Uh, I haven't been tempted by the studio display, not yet anyway. See, I've never heard of a space monitor. So it is it it's presumably it's very thin. I mean, is that is the word space to mean that it has stars on it or that it takes a little space? It it takes up very little space on the desktop. So the idea is yeah. that it it it's hinged and it hooks into the back of the desk without needing a um, visa mount of any kind. Um, and then when you want to push it out of the way, you just fold it up and push it out of the way. I don't do that very often. I just liked the uh, the the pixel density and the aspect ratio or, or the size, I should say. Um, so that's why I went with it. Uh, yeah, that's kind of. I'm just looking at it now. It's cool, but I, I didn't even know it was such a thing. That hinge looks wild. It does. Yeah, it 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 ha- makes an impression. And recently, I managed to finally weasel my way into my wife doesn't spend a lot of time on her at her home office. Uh, and so I managed to steal slash borrow her display. So I've got that second display set up in a vertical orientation. And that's really nice, too. Um, although it's huge, at, uh, it's a 4K display and the vertical orientation is really it's really awkward, like looking way up. And having yeah, to, like, yeah, that's hard your on head. your neck. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's still fun to have. Yeah, we're going to put a link for this space monitor in the show notes. You guys have to see this thing. It's kind of wild. And it it can also, like, it hinges, like, down to desk level if you want. Yeah. Um, almost like a Microsoft Surface display, you know? Yeah, I wish I wish it was touch sensitive. Yeah, it's not. of course it's not. But the um, but it is kind of trippy. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that the, the iPad was one of those things that 
that drew you into the Apple ecosystem. You mentioned running Windows tablets back in the day. Uh, mm-hmm. Where does the iPad fit in now as as sort of life has changed and the iPad has changed too? Yeah. Um, so I had a, a love-hate relationship with it for a while. I think it was, was it John Syracuse who said that it was the, the best Mac accessory? Um, I really couldn't make it work as my full-time permanent device, but then I always kind of wanted around because, well, as a PhD student, and even in my consulting work, I do a lot of reading and brow- not not really browsing, but researching and data analysis with, of, of text on the iPad. So the iPad plus a pencil is just so essential. And so that's where that's where it fits in. I've got, uh, I make heavy use of DevonThink. We can talk more about that maybe later, but um, I always have the pencil out. And I guess this is where we can mention that I recently bought a weird accessory for the iPad. Um, that is the G-Hold. <laughs> not not the G-Hole, as I think uh, we misheard me say earlier. It's not some kind of weird pair of underwear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's a giant pop. Pop, uh, not pop clip. That's the app pop socket. Yeah. Pop socket. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a giant pop socket, and it has a little slot for your fingers to fit in. It's not perfect. Um, it's not. Uh, it it can be a little uncomfortable uh, to use, but it's certainly more comfortable and more more ergonomic than just trying to like single hand hold an iPad eleven. It's an eleven inch iPad Pro. I should have mentioned that. Um, and for I'm talking hours at a time. Sometimes I'll be reading for six or eight hours in a day like that, and uh, it it can get hard on the wrists. So the G Hold has been helping. It gives an extra little place to put your fingers and give yourself some some rest. Oh, guys, if you go to g-hold.com on their website, they've got a picture of two of these G Holds stuck to the wall, <laughs> and somebody hung a MacBook off the wall with a G Hold. It's like literally, you got to see this. They sell, yeah. That's. I think they sell specific products for hanging laptops, and I don't know if I'd recommend that. But yeah, that is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it's it's. Hey, it's surprisingly robust. Uh, It uses microsuction. Yeah, yeah. It it uses microsuction. At least you can choose between an adhesive and a microsuction when you buy it. And the microsuction, I don't mind holding it upside down over uh, the concrete floor that I'm on right now. Um, I trust it enough for that. But you can peel it off. I I, I also, I've been meaning to write this up for the forum. I think it'd be an interesting sort of product review. Um, But I did buy a pop socket to compare. My question was like, do I need this giant G-hold thing? Or if I put a pop socket on, is it the same? Yeah. Um, and the pop socket helped in similar ways. It's a bit small for the size of the iPad, but I took the pop socket off and it just like was this weird adhesive glue that just like it was I had to wrench the iPad in uncomfortable ways in order to take that off. Whereas the G hold, if I ever want to switch it back to um, using the magic keyboard or whatever, I can pretty easily peel it off and then reattach it later. And it sticks really well. So you're using the iPad primarily for like PDF annotation and reading. Exactly. Yeah. yeah PDF that, annotation. That's what it's really good at. Mm-hmm. Have you tried the new universal control? I haven't played with it. I only just recently updated to 15.4.1. Um, and so I've been meaning to, but I, I haven't really had a need for it because um, I've got so many displays already. And that, that extra third or fourth display, really, uh, if I wanted it, wouldn't really add much. Um, but I, I did try um, the reverse. I forget what it's called now. Why am I forgetting? Sidecar. Sidecar, thank you. I was really yeah. excited for Sidecar to come out. And then I was confused. I actually wrote um, Craig Federici, and he wrote back, or at least one of his many assistants, I'm sure, wrote back. Um, because I, I was using it with Magic with the Magic Keyboard, but you couldn't control your Mac with the Magic Keyboard. Um, so therefore, I take credit for uh, universal control. Obviously, that was because of my uh, complaint. 
quick aside, if you haven't tried universal control and you've got your Macs and iPads updated, uh, I would recommend giving it a shot, especially if you routinely keep your iPad on your desk, because I find it really useful. And, um, I don't know. I'm just a big fan, but I keep my iPad under my monitor. So I use sidecar aggressively and now I use universal control. I, I think both of these technologies are great. Uh, the nice thing about universal control is of course, you don't have to have a keyboard anymore with two Bluetooth radios into it. You can just, you know, put your mouse on your iPad and then start typing with the keyboard attached to your Mac and it all works. Mm-hmm. Steven, have you done, have you done that yet? Yeah, I've done it some, I mean, since switching to the iPad mini using yeah. it, like as a second display is not, it's not as enticing as it was on a bigger iPad. Maybe. Oh yeah, totally. But yeah, it doesn't make. Any I sense. have been super impressed with how smooth it is, and it's like how fun it is. Like you push the cursor, and it sort of like pops out of the side of the iPad. All that is like very nicely done, and I think it's. Uh, I think it's cool. I just I'm not sure how useful it is on on my tiny iPad. Yeah, because I still had my big uh, 2018 iPad Pro, and. Yeah. I was on the verge of selling it. I'm like, then I'd started using a sidecar and I'm like, Oh, this is actually really useful because I don't, I'm not going to buy a second monitor, but uh, putting this underneath gave me a place to, to put additional windows and whatnot. But now it's like, yeah, this thing is a fixture. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. It's a really clever, clever setup. I should mention too, uh, the iPad mini was the reason I bought the G hold. Um, because I was jealous of all of how excited everybody was with their uh, new iPad minis. And yet the purchase delivery timeline was still months away when I ordered the G hold. And I was like, you know what, if I could, if I could hold the, this iPad a little bit more easily with one hand, then I bet you I wouldn't be, wouldn't be jealous anymore. Which iPad is it? It's an iPad. Uh, it's the second generation 11 inch iPad pro. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And honestly, for the type of work you're doing, I think an iPad mini would be difficult. Or it would if you have fifty-year-old eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I I think you're right. There was actually a thread on that on the forum. Another shout out to the forum where people um, were debating the use of the merits of the mini for a lot of heavy reading, and it was definitely the consensus that it's better to go bigger. Yeah, I think if you do, if like you're, if you're reading Amazon Kindle books, it's fine. But if you're like reading and annotating documents or PDFs, like the type of work you do when you're getting your PhD, yeah, I think it's too small. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by SaneBox. Go to SaneBox.com MPU to get $25 off and stop drowning in email. I am such a fan of SaneBox. I've been a paying member for, I don't know, at least more than five years now. Because SaneBox learns what email is important to me and filters out what isn't, saving me hours. The way SaneBox works is when you sign up for an account, it's a web service, it then gets the ability to look at the recipient name and the subject line of your emails. It doesn't look at the contents, just those two bits of data. And then it does an automatic sorting. It looks at the email that you respond to quickly and the email that you don't, and it sorts it for you. So uh, in your inbox, when you start the day, it's just the most important email. And the stuff that's not so important, it filters out into other folders. It's like having a little assistant 24-7 checking your mail as you come in and sorting it for you. But it's a lot more than that, too. You can also use SaneBox to defer email. You can set up deferred boxes. Like I have one called Saturday. And anything that relates to personal business, like the electric bill or whatever, I just dump it into the Saturday uh, deferred folder. And then on Saturday, I see the email again and deal with it all then. 
They have additional services, though, because they just keep adding more. Uh, one of my favorite is the same black hole where you can unsubscribe with one click. You just drag an email into the same black hole. You never get an email from that person again. They have same reminders, which is probably my very favorite feature where I can blind copy or copy an email to SaneBox. And I'll say one week at SaneBox.com to an email I send to Steven. If Steven doesn't reply to me in a week, then SaneBox says, hey, he didn't reply to that email. What are you going to do about it? I used to have a very complicated system to track email responses. And I threw all of that overboard when I started using SaneBox and got this feature because it's just so handy. Uh, so there's a whole lot you can do with Sandbox. You can save attachments to Dropbox. There's just a bunch of features. And you get it all starting as low as $4 a month. They've got a 14-day free trial for Mac Power users listeners. Just go to sandbox.com slash MPU. And if you go there, you get $25 off. MPU listeners subscribe to Sandbox at a surprising rate. And the reason is because you guys get it. Um, you want to make email easier. And I didn't say earlier, but Sandbox can work with just about any email service because it's a cloud service. So whether you're using Apple Mail or Gmail or whatever, uh, it works. So uh, I'm a big fan. I use it every day. You should check it out. That URL, one last time, samebox.com slash MPU to get that $25 off and let them know you came from the Mac Power Users. Our thanks to Samebox for all of their support of the Mac Power Users. Go check it out today and stop drowning in email. So, Ryan, uh, we talked about you being a Ph.D. student. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about some of the workflows that you employ uh, while in that mode. I mm-hmm. was never a Ph.D. student. <laughs> it's not something I ever pursued. Um, but I would imagine that uh, anything from task management and sort of workload management all the way through actual research and writing, there's stuff that you're doing all over the place that's interesting. Um I think I'd like to start with something we we uh, have in the in the show notes here mm-hmm. uh, about concept mapping. Uh, last mm-hmm. week we had Allison Sheridan on. We talked some about diagramming and sort of the, this a way that a lot of people work to visually lay out ideas or information, whether for themselves and maybe it's just in preparation of writing or research, or to share an idea with somebody else. And I'm curious how you approach that. Yeah. Um- I should, and uh, I was excited to talk about this because it is actually another kind of use case for, yeah, use of the iPad. Um, One of the two key apps I use for this stuff is Concept. Um, And it's it's effectively a sketching app, right? That's what it looks like when you first show, uh, look at Concepts on the App Store. It looks like you're supposed to use it for architecture. Um, But in reality, Concepts is this brilliant, if you've ever heard of sketch noting or... um, even just like an, having an infinite canvas, it's this brilliant app where you can really heavily customize the tools you're using. Uh, and even down to, and I love when apps go this far with customization, down to there are there are some gestures. What do, I, what do they call it? Like the tap and hold. Yeah, so there, there's a tap and hold gesture. You can customize exactly what that does and you can customize how long you need to hold the screen before tap and hold will show up. Um, and so it's this brilliant vector sketching app, but it, uh, can it can be really flexible. You can really customize exactly how you want to use it. Um, and so uh, Stephen mentioned this this workflow of concept mapping, which is just really, it's like a more freeform version of mind mapping, right? Sometimes if you're trying to think through something complicated or complex, um, the linear nature of a mind of a mind map where you've got a single node that leads to more nodes, but it can't be nonlinear, it can't be cyclical, um, that kind of linearity can get in the way. Uh, and so... 
I love sitting down if I'm trying to think something through, opening up concepts um, in a nice armchair or something, and then sketching it out pieces. And this is where that tap and hold comes into play. Um, it's really easy to use a lasso and tap and hold and select things. So that lets you, with concepts, move things around and make sense of them. So it's I, really useful. I uh, can't agree more. This application is amazing. And I don't understand why there aren't a hundred apps in the app store with an infinite canvas, because it's the infinite canvas that really makes it work for you because you can start with an idea and you just never know how big it's going to get. It's like having a post-it note that's eight foot by eight foot, you know, and you just start writing in a corner of it before, you know, you fill up the whole thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. I love this application. In fact, the day Stephen that I texted you that I was going to quit being a lawyer, I opened up this app. And just said, okay, what is my life like without being a lawyer? And I Mm. just started concept mapping it. And uh, the thing that makes me want to throw this through the window, however, (laughs) is that it doesn't sync with the other iPads and it doesn't have a Mac app. And it's like, how did you get so much right? And not have syncing in this app is crazy to me. And uh, I paid for a subscription, but I feel like, you know, if they don't have that figured out by the time my renewal comes, I'm going to be looking at, but I, I even did look, I mean, there's just, I could deal with a tool that doesn't have all the bells and whistles that this app does. If it just synced and had an infinite canvas, but there really isn't anything out there like it. But yeah, I, uh, I love and hate this app all at once because of that. Yeah. They, they have teased, um, that they've been working on sync. I think for years now, I remember seeing something on it a couple of years ago and they still haven't pushed it out. Um, never make a, a software purchase, but based on the promise of a future, yeah, <laughs> future of software development. Yeah. Um, but it is, if, if you just accept it for what it is, it's this like big whiteboard that you can fit in a book bag and, and, uh, carry around with you. Then it does work pretty well for that, but it is sad. Yeah, the way I've I've kind of used, I end up using it at my desk with that leftover iPad, that huge iPad. But then when I get to my little iPad, what if I want to make a little change to it? But I, I can't. I have to only work at that one device with it, which in this day and age really isn't that big of a problem, right? You know, my grandpa yeah. worked in a coal mine. But the um, yeah. but it does bug me. <laughs> you know, it's like, come on, guys. I mean, yeah. come on. But it, yeah, I agree with you, though. It, it is a very powerful app and it is a great, place to to cook on ideas um Mm -hmm. and and it's extensible beyond that too um i used to be a graphic designer i used to play in illustrator and photoshop and all those places and concepts although it doesn't compare say to some of the other bigger sketch or even um uh the affinity tools that are out there um it can be used for that kind of graphic design and i made i've made some pretty neat art with it um i'll just mention i was proud of the art i made for a blog post on integrated thinking environments which we can link um, in the show notes, but it, it was a lot of fun to put a photo in the app. It's a photo of a flower that I took on actually like an iPhone five, 10 years ago um, and uh, was able to use a classic vector tools to sort of erase parts of the photo and rearrange it in a, a collage. And it was just so much fun to sit down and play with that while thinking about that blog post. So I, I, in spite of its syncing, uh, lack of syncing abilities, it is such a neat, neat application. And then you've also listed the other infinite canvas app I use, OmniGraffle. And how, mm-hmm. so, so how do you use OmniGraffle and how does that work with concepts for you? Yeah, so it, it kind of is like a first stage of sketching out ideas will show up in con- concepts for me. Um, if I really just want to make a mess and I'm not exactly sure, uh, say I'm at the zero to one percent part of an idea. And then if I need to do anything more formidable in terms of diagramming, having something more legible, um, 
I will jump to OmniGraffle. And unfortunately, you know, that usually does mean reproducing some of the sketching I might have been doing in concepts. But OmniGraffle is just so powerful. I think it's a underrated feature, even though it's celebrated as much as it is. It, I think it is underrated still. Um, OmniGraffle has, for instance, some built-in mind mapping tools. And if you can configure the key- keyboard shortcuts effectively, you can actually do a lot of mind mapping the same way you would in MindNode or um, even an outliner right in OmniGraffle, and it works really well. Um, you can jump, for instance, from shape to shape with uh, a couple of different keyboard extension or keyboard shortcuts. Um, but one of my favorite things to do with OmniGraffle is to get a nice big display um, and uh, clean up the view. One of my favorite keyboard uh, ma- keyboard maestro macros is uh, I hit command and backtick. And in every app I use often, that will clean the view. So it'll hide all of the sidebars and hide the menu bar and just give me nothing but the content. Um, And doing that in OmniGraffle and then using keyboard shortcuts that are sort of built into my muscle memory uh, is just, it's such a clean way of thinking and rearranging and organizing things. Yeah, I built my kind of my little status board in OmniGraffle that way because um, it wasn't really what the tool was made for, but you can also embed URL links in the notes so then you just fill your screen with that. You click the nodes and you can jump to whatever app you need to related to any specific project. It's, it's really mm-hmm. nice. It is. The, uh, also, I would argue that OmniGraffle is a tool you use if, if what you're working on is going to see other eyes than your own. You know, yeah. um, The stuff I do in concepts, it's for me. You know, And then when I'm going to start sharing with people, I'll clean it up with OmniGraffle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but you can, uh, again, just to reiterate, you can get really artistic with concepts. And I think, I bet you if you're a, an illustrator out there and you, you're you trying to think um, conceptually, make sense of something, do some sketch noting, I bet you you can make something look really good in concepts. Uh, and you can't quite get that sort of artisanal design look in OmniGraffle unless you're tweaking a lot of little windows and uh, modals. And it, you can make OmniGraffle look really pretty too. I have done uh, quite a few projects in OmniGraffle where I've, say, translated a map of a system and tried to add iconography and color. And it can look really good there too. Um, but there's definitely a, sort of a place for both of them, I think. Yeah, you had mentioned at the top of the show that you use OmniGraffle with some of your um, your the work or the, the stuff you're doing, like with the UN stuff. How does it fit in there? Sure. One of the main tools that I use in that work is called a causal loop diagram, which is just a type of box. I have a master design, right? And um, you might have heard the joke before that an MBA is a master of boxes and arrows. Well, the (laughs) MDES that I have is uh, fancier boxes and arrows. Um, But that's that's what I do with causal loop diagrams. I draw boxes and arrows and then use those simple little shapes to make sense of a complex system. And that typically looks like um, a big map of phenomena. So you have, say, um, I'm trying to think of a, a nice example. Say you have procrastination as a problem and you're trying to understand procrastination. Actually, I did this recently as a, a I was working on my own procrastination problem. So there's a, a blog post I can link to. Um, doesn't use OmniGraffle, but same idea. Um, and you're just trying to understand what causes procrastination. So in a causal loop diagram, you'd draw uh, causes that are associated with a phenomena and then just connect them with arrows. And then you think about what causes those causes and you connect those with arrows. And then eventually you get loops and um, interesting, call them shapes, archetypes that help you make sense of that complex looping um, dynamic counterintuitive problem. Yeah. I mean, just I've said this on the show before, but so many times in my career, I've had people, you know, want to know who did my graphics for me. And it's always, you know, on the gravel. Mm-hmm. 
it's so it's it, it's really clean. You can really clean things up and and make them look good if you if you make use of. I particularly like um, what was I thinking? Like uh, using iconography and adding um, icons inside shapes and using gradients and, and shadows. You have to play with the app for a bit before you get a sense of where, like any professional app, before you get a sense of what you need to, to change and tune and adjust yeah. in order to make it look good. But you can make things look really great. Now, you said you also use DevonThink a lot with your mm-hmm. research and analysis. How does that work? Sure. So uh, DevonThink is kind of, it's a wonderful app. Um, and it's kind of the backbone to a lot of my, say, resource management. Um I have, uh, as we've heard from you guys before, same, the same the same sort of size of databases. I have thousands and thousands of PDFs, and I use DevonThink actually as my RSS reader, my read it later service, my eventual like PDF reading and annotating service. And lately, um, a, a sort of Readwise style um, annotations export. And so that's the the coolest latest workflow I've come up with is. I like the idea of Readwise's uh, ability to to sort of stream highlights out of Kindle books. And I wanted to figure out how to do that for PDFs. They're working on a beta. I don't think we can say too much about it. Reader, the reader beta is really clean, really powerful. Um, But it, I I don't know if it'll be for me. I think it's a, uh, uh, I I want to be able to um, own PDFs. And I think it's going to go with the model of saving PDFs in the cloud, which is fine. It's powerful, but I wanted to have a bit more control than that. And maybe, again, it's a beta. I don't want to say too much. Maybe they'll kick me out of the beta at this point if they hear this. But uh, they. Uh, I, so what I did was with DevonThink, I created a way of monitoring basically when a PDF has been changed, checking if it's got some new annotations, and then it extracts those annotations out into a file that I can then review. Uh, and it's this really neat way. What I'm trying to do is, is create a way of being able to read a ton uh, without really thinking about managing the readings. And so uh, I just want to work with the content of the readings and extract out what I what I want from them and then use that in the stuff that I'm creating myself. And that's, Devin Think has a bunch of uh, tools that make that really powerful and really easy. Yeah, so you're you're pulling annotations uh, off, mm-hmm. your, off your PDF from within Devin Think. And, and how is that? So at, at Readwise is, you know, a, um, I forget the term of art for it, the... Um, repetitive, what do they call it? Uh, oh, um, space repetition. Space repetition system where it allows you to kind of occasionally see things that you thought were important before. And so you're building the space repetition system into DevonThink now? Is that what you're doing? I'm building the extraction out into DevonThink. You could okay. use DevonThink to do the the sort of reading and review as well. Actually, yeah. lately, shout out to the DevonThink team because they've been doing a ton of work on um, med- editing and working with markdown files. So yeah. they, you really can do a lot of this. I won't say what tool I use for the actual working with the annotations because it's the, been banned yeah, in this episode. That will not be named. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. No, yeah. but you know, and honestly, um, all of us that are so excited about the app that will not be named, uh, <laughs> the joke may be on us because I do think the DevonThink team is actually putting a ton of effort into Markdown in DevonThink to kind of bring that that tool up. You know, yeah. um, I mean, DevonThink is amazing for resources. It's not, in my opinion. Um, as good with text as some of the others, but they're like they're piling on with that right now. So that may be the like one solution for all before you know it. Oh yeah, I mean one of the marvels of Devin Think is uh, there's this article from Stephen Johnson, the author Stephen Johnson. It's like ten or fifteen years old now, yeah. in something like the New York Times, and he's talking about using Devin Think as this um, knowledge management solution that has 
all these fancy tools. And I mean, it's been around for that long because it's that robust and it's that effective. Yeah. Um, and I really think a lot of these new tools are great because they're pushing the Devon Tech team to to push Devon Think even further. And it's just so good for us end users because we get all these tools. Oh, yeah. And then the nice thing about Devon Think is that it integrates so well with so many other things. So if you can use it as that backbone, then it's there, it's sturdy, um, and it has all these automation powers that are built in that you can take advantage of. Yeah, and it's also so integrated with the system because like file links, you know, you can create links to files on your Mac you know, with some third-party solutions. But when you put it in dev and think that that link that you create is rock solid. And for someone who's all about systems, uh, that the ability to link crosswise into your dev and think library, I mean, that's, that's probably the reason I could never leave dev and think. Yeah. It's, uh, it it makes me feel more secure about uh, having all these different documents and um, the the search is worth celebrating as well. Full text index search. You yeah, can search yeah. for things and get them so fast, no matter how many um, items you've got stored away. So, well, Stephen, you had you actually moved your your Mac library around a lot of different places for a while there, but now you've been in Devon Think for a year or two. Are you yeah. are you settled? I mean, how do you feel about it? Oh, I am. I mean, it's it's the only tool that really works when you have a super large data set. I mean, I'm up, I was actually opening it in the background. 42,000 individual items in DevonThink. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have them sorted into some into some different uh, databases and collections and stuff, but the search is just as fast with 42,000 items as it was with 400. And, like, uh, you know, getting into a topic past me may not have filed everything exactly where present me would expect it. And so even though I do have things sorted out, I often uh, turn to the search to find something. And the fact that it can find not only markdown and plain text or web archives, but also PDFs because it can OCR things as they come in, pulling RSS feeds in. It really, in my mind, there's really not anything comparable to it on the Mac. It really, when you're dealing with big data sets, in in my mind, and from what I've discovered, it really stands alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think really for me, the... I mean, with version three, the improvements made the user interface and the, I mean, have either of you ever had a sync problem? Because that, that's the thing that really sold me is when it started reliably syncing. I mean, 10 years ago, I felt like the sync was pretty rough. Now I don't even have to think twice about it. Hmm. I think it's gotten a lot better. I wish it was, I think it's iOS's fault. (laughs) We yeah. can talk about this more later. Oh, the um, iPad sync, yeah. That's yeah, the, yeah, the lack of background sync um, and the lack of, uh, I'm sure they would do it if they could, but uh, the fact that I've kind of got to wait every time I open up the app. I know, David, you've talked about running it in the in late at night on your iPad in order to keep yeah. the database synced, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, it's it's too bad that we're still dealing with that kind of trouble. Yeah, you gotta like you got to like hack the system because Apple won't let them just run background sync for two hours. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I really don't ever touch it on my iPhone or iPad. I mean, occasional, very occasionally, but I really think about it as a, a Mac app. Honestly, one of the reasons why I've chilled on the iPad is because of Dev and Think. It's like, I don't want to deal with that anymore. I'd rather just have a little MacBook and yeah. run it, my Dev and Think library on it, you know? Yeah, and I, I don't know about y'all, but when I'm in that sort of research phase, I will have sometimes like dozens of documents open or I got windows going everywhere 
and I want to be able to compare them and, and switch back and forth between them because I have all this stuff in Devon. and they can want to look at more than one piece of information at a time. And that's not the iPad strong suit in case you haven't noticed. Yeah, but, mm-hmm. but the strong suit is open a PDF and allow me to highlight and annotate it, which is what Ryan needs to do for yeah. his, his doctorate. Sure. So it's like, yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm. I think it's, we're almost there. I think we just need Apple to let us do a little bit more with the iPad. And we'll be able to do all these things without thinking too much about which device device we're in. Um, the, the thing that I was going to say um, about... Oh, right. I don't want to get away from this idea because it's such a huge potential is Devon Think as an RSS reader. Um, if you've ever used an RSS reader, you're used to like clean, sleek interfaces, being able to say uh, mark on red while scrolling past items. Devon Think isn't going to give you that. But what it does do is give you granular automation-based controls over what shows up in your inbox. Um, and then what I love about it is it turns everything I want. This is what, sorry, excuse me. This is what my setup is. I have every single news item show up as a PDF. And so that means that I can annotate every single news item as I want. So if I'm getting scholarly articles showing up or um, uh, uh, work that I, I want to extract content from, DevonThink as an RSS reader is really powerful. But then we get kicked in the pants by the lack of background sync and constantly sort of waiting for um, the iPad to catch up. And so um, we're in a sort of almost there state, in my view. Yeah, I hope. I hope. I mean, we're going to get, um, you know, an update to iPad OS, you know, in a couple months. They've already announced uh, June 6 will be the keynote for WWDC this year. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm not holding my breath that it's suddenly going to be on par with a with a Mac, but maybe background sync would be something they could implement this year. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, they have background sync, but they don't really have background sync, if that makes sense, because they... They don't want the apps to overuse the resources and battery. But like, for instance, my iPad, the one that I've been talking about today is plugged in all the time. So why not say, well, if it's plugged in, go ahead and let the app do the background sync for an hour. Right. But either way, uh, we are off on a tangent here. This episode of MPU is made possible by FitBod. We're all balancing work and family and everything else. It can be hard to make fitness a priority. What you need is a program that works with you, not against you, and that's FitBod. FitBod's algorithm learns about you, your goals, and your training ability, and it crafts personalized exercise plans that are unique to you. That makes it incredibly easy to learn exactly how to perform each exercise. They have videos in there, so you can see exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And FitBod is really great about not making personal fitness about competition, Right, You don't want to look to others and try to stack up against them or do what they do. You need something that will work for you. That's when it sticks, and that's when you'll see the results you're looking for. FitBod uses data to create and adjust your dynamic fitness plan. You have instant access to your own personalized routine in their fantastic app, so you can make progress on your goals from anywhere. I've been using FitBod to work out at home for quite a while now, and I've been really happy with it. So I want to talk a little bit about how it uses data. So it gives you a set of exercises to do. Maybe you're going to do curls uh, with some uh, some weight. And maybe it says you're going to do 10 reps with 30 pounds, as an example. Uh, say that you get to the end of that, and that was really easy. Well, it makes it easy for you to go and tell the app, hey, that was easy next time. Increase it. Or the other way around, maybe that was too much. You didn't make the complete set. You can tell it how many reps you made it. 
to before failure. And that all goes into what FitBot is using to build your next workout plan. They learn from your last workout, so your next one will be even better. Whether you're working out twice a day or twice a week, FitBot tracks your muscle recovery to make sure your plan is uh, balanced with a variety of exercises to make sure you're not overworking anything. Those brand new video tutorials I mentioned, they're shot from multiple angles, so learning each exercise is a breeze. And it integrates with your Apple Watch, Wear OS smartwatch, and apps like Strava, Fitbit, and Apple Health. Personalized training of this quality can be really expensive, but FitBot is $12.99 a month or $79.99 a year. You can get 25% off that, 25% off your membership at fitbod.me slash MPU. That's F-I-T-B-O-D, fitbod.me slash MPU, and you'll get 25% off your membership. Our thanks to FitBod for their support of the show and Relay FM. So, Ryan, before the break, we were kind of talking about iPad limitations, and we've already teased a little bit that you've kind of had a uh, an evolution as an iPad user. Mm-hmm. Uh, take us on the journey. Sure. Yeah. So it's really an evolution as a as a tablet user. As I mentioned at the start of the show, I was I've been using tablet um, computers for a long, long time. Um, the quick backstory is that I was diagnosed with writing disability in um, grade 11. Basically, a teacher noticed that I was performing poorly when I had to write a test, but I would be great in class speaking. Um, And so the recommendation was that I start typing. And so I had to bring a laptop in, but I was doing a lot of science, a lot of math. So I didn't want to all have notes on text in one place and written notes on another. So I looked into the Windows tablet PC world um, and started out with uh, an old Wacom uh, tablet that was built in. Uh, I don't think it even, it even had uh, capacitive touch. It was pressure. <laughs> you had to push into the screen in order to get oh, oh, um, yeah. your 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 finger to work. Um, but the stylus worked so well. And then I kept using tablets um, or, or stylus-based tablets for ages. Um, went through a ton. I encourage folks to look up uh, Samsung 7, Series 7 Slate, which was this ridiculous near iPad that ran Windows 7 that I owned for a while. But uh, all of that sort of was showing me the promise of having this really powerful computer that you could use a pen with. Um, and as I said at the early part of the show, when the iPad came out and paper by 53 started getting advertised, I was just enthralled. So I jumped with that. I jumped to an iPad. I think I had an iPad mini at first and used one of those Adonit styluses, uh, styli. Yeah. Is that almost a little disc on the end? Yeah. And it was so annoying. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, but you still had that, you had that dream then of the Apple ecosystem, all the wonderful app developers making these amazing, powerful tools. And then eventually we finally got the Apple pencil and I was so excited that the day they launched the Apple pencil, even though it had that annoying stick out of the back of the iPad, uh, charging port. So fast forward, now we've got the wonderful Pencil 2. Um, We've got the Apple app ecosystem. Uh, And so it's like the dream world from grade 11, me, um, dealing with this magical modular computer. And yet, as we were saying before the break, um, it's weirdly held back. And so what I wanted to talk about in in this segment is um, just a bunch of what I think of as um, paternalism in design decisions. And so there's this... (laughs) scholarly article. You don't have to go dive into it if you don't want to. Um, but effectively, it, it argues, it's a recent art. It doesn't focus on Apple, but I really saw Apple showing up in the way these authors wrote about paternalism and design. Inherently, if you're a designer, you're making paternalistic decisions, right? You're deciding what a user uh, is using and how they're using it. Um, but I really feel that for some reason, Apple's been missing the mark with, uh, in particular, pro iPads. Um, 
there's been a lot of talk over the past couple of years about what pro means. Um, and it doesn't just mean like a black color, right? It, it means pro as in independence and autonomy. Um, and yet for so many different aspects of using the iPad, it's restrained by Apple not wanting to let people take risks or do something that might potentially be wrong. Um, and I'm not going to get into the security issues that those are beyond my pay grade. Um, but simple things like running background sync, like we were just talking about, or, and this one's particularly important to my wife is iCloud and optimizing storage. Um, so she is an Apple user as well. Um, and she is a doctor. And as you can imagine, sometimes in the bowels of a hospital, you don't have great Wi-Fi and you don't have great uh, data. So you go to open up, say, the latest standard on how to treat a certain condition just to double check the numbers or whatever. And suddenly iCloud's like, sorry, we've saved your storage. So you're, you can be happy about the fact that you can't access this, this uh, file right now. Um, and it's just such a, such a strange problem because I don't know why a user can't be given the power on an iPad to say, no, don't optimize my storage. I really need all these files. Um, and so that's kind of my rant on paternalism. And, and I think Apple could tap into, um, could give users way more power if they relax that paternalism a little bit and let people do what they want with the iPad. Well, and I'm sure you see that as someone who used to use Windows because Apple has always been paternalistic with their hardware. I mean, mm -hmm. that's kind of been their jam. I mean, I feel like that's in some way a measure of their success that, you know, you, you buy a Mac and it just works and you don't have to defrag the drive and, you know, but you, you lose the flexibility and power uh, that you get with some of the Windows and Android options, but you get the benefit of stability and something that always works. Mm -hmm. And so I, I actually think paternalism to an extent can work, mm -hmm. but I agree. I feel like they have gone over the line with the iPad and I don't understand why. I mean, I, we've talked about this on the show so much now, it's probably old hat for the listeners, but it just seems like they've just decided that this is as far as we want to go with this device. And you can't now blame lack of technology. I mean, last year they put the same chip in the iPad that they put in the MacBook Air, but they left the iPad largely as is. And mm -hmm. that that is a decision. And um, paternalism, I've never heard of that term in relation to technology, but that exactly describes what's going on mm -hmm. and well I, I do want to challenge though because the mac uh, the mac's paternalism isn't really there in fact compared with windows you're the the automation tools and the sort of underbelly of mac os to me gives or at least has historically given users more power than windows being to be able to script and automate it um at least in my experience and Yet, if you look at a Windows Surface, it is Windows just as a tablet. And I'm sure people have strong opinions about the Surface. My strong opinion is that it is a brilliant device. It doesn't run Mac, and that's, it doesn't run Mac OS. And that's the biggest problem I have with it. Um, I looked into getting a, a Surface and doing the Hackintosh thing to it for a long yeah. time, but you lose things like Wi-Fi, so it's not yeah. going to work. Um, yeah. But it, I mean... I'm not advocating that we just put a Mac on, put a tablet or sorry, a touch sensitive screen on a Mac, but it's these little things like uh, optimizing storage in iCloud and background activity and multiple windows. Like we're so close on iPad OS and yet we're not there yet. Yeah. It's like, almost like on the Mac, like, you know, let's use the bowling, you know, alley analogy, you know, um, they, if you're, if you go bowling now, they have guardrails. They didn't have these when I was a kid, but you can push a button and the ball never goes into the gutter, you know, and that's like the out of the box Mac experience. But it, um, 
there's another lane without guardrails on the Mac that if you just want to move over into that, you know, Apple script terminal, all that stuff, you can, you know, you can do whatever you want. I guess you're right. I would agree with you on that, but that lane doesn't exist on the iPad and it Mm -hmm. doesn't seem like they have really any desire to even head towards making it. Mm -hmm. And, and, And the last thing I'll say is, it's just, I take issue with the fact that they're calling it a pro device, right? It's like, if you're giving people this idea that they're professionals then let them be professionals and take a bit of risk. Uh, others have said this, but I don't think, Pro means professional when Apple says mm-hmm. it. I think they sure. use the label Pro to mean something nice or high end. Mm-hmm. I think so much of the the conversation on the iPad just comes from the simple fact of where it started. That it did start as iPhone OS, you know, way back eleven years ago now, however long it's been, and having the a decade to unfold itself from that nest. They just haven't moved fast enough, right? We, mm-hmm. we want the iPad to be more Mac-like in a bunch of different ways. Apple has done some of them, hasn't done others. And you just see this like this inherent tension in the product that I think has been there from day one. I mean, day one, it was introduced as something better than a phone at this, this, and this, and better than a notebook at this, this, and this. And there's a sweet middle ground and the iPad's never really been able to escape that. It's never mm-hmm. been able to move up to be a true sibling of the Mac in terms of capability. And the reasons for that, I mean, who knows, right? Like, uh, I'm sure that there are endless debate within Apple about where the iPad should fit in and mm-hmm. where it should be more Mac-like and where it shouldn't be. And you have all of that history to contend with, and you also have to deal with the fact that it's interface being limited to touch for most people. Most people don't have the keyboard and trackpad and pencil, right? Because most people are just buying the the most inexpensive iPad. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to expose these power user level tools in interesting and new ways that like have to fit in with that paradigm. Right. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning moving to the Mac uh, in large part because of the Unix tools under the hood. I mean, Mm -hmm. I remember like Apple explaining that in the OS 10 transition, like, yes, this new interface is beautiful and it runs all your classic Mac apps if you need it to. And also there's this thing called the terminal and you have all this, the power of Unix. And in the early days, Apple would like in a new version of OS 10, talk about the new version of Unix. They were bundling with it <laughs> with all these new tools. And there was always this like secondary layer that, yeah, if you just want to like open your iBook and do iPhoto, it was great. But if you needed to go further, you could. And it was there from the beginning, at least of OS 10, where the iPad didn't start there. And so now trying to like figure out where that should go. Like I don't, I don't envy that design problem because i think kind of no matter where they move they're going to make some people unhappy yeah i i don't the, the good analysis um i i don't think i think it's this conversation ends up getting embroiled in all kinds of history about you know how how people um think of the ipad and i don't want to say like let's think about the ipad more as a mac in fact there's a great thread on the forum and i, I can't remember exactly what it was called. I'll find it for the show notes. Um, but people were debating this as like, you know, as they do every couple months on on the MPU talk. Um, and one user pointed out that 
if you give in to the iPad and the UX that has been envisioned by Apple's designers, it is actually really beautiful. And I liked that challenge, so I did. This was only a few months ago. Um, and I remember just like last week, I was working with a numbers sheet and I decided to just forget all of the paradigms that I'm used to, right? Forget all of the muscle memory of macOS and give in to the touch interface and use every gesture. And oh my God, it was beautiful working with a spreadsheet and selecting a set of range with uh, of numbers with multiple um, fingers and using the like three pinch in, three finger pinch in and three finger pinch out to cut and copy and paste. It was the fastest I've probably ever interacted with a spreadsheet that way. So if you give in, it's really powerful, but yet we lack multiple windows. Uh, we lack background activity. We lack... Um, uh, optimizing storage. And so it's only these few things that I see as being um, holding it back. And, and I think we're so close. So I'm just hoping that Apple, that somebody at Apple hears this and thinks a bit more about that paternalism. It's like, don't change what you're trying to make the iPad. It's a beautiful modular system. Um, but at least appreciate that users deserve some autonomy and some independence in um, burning their battery a bit more or, um, you know, putting an icon in the bottom right of the screen. <laughs> Um, or when I plug it into an external monitor, it doesn't yes. look like garbage, you know, um, <laughs> it just, you know, it's just like, it seems to me, and I don't think any of us are arguing we want the iPad to have the Mac operating system on it. Um, but um, to me, the best example of like doing this right was their mouse implementation. I mean, they didn't mm -hmm. just put a cursor on the screen. They made a mouse cursor that's smart and makes sense for a device like the iPad. In fact, now, when I use universal control and my mouse jumps onto the iPad and goes into iPad mode, I think, man, I would kind of like some of these features on my Mac now. Hmm. Um, mm -hmm. But the, uh, but you know, that's what I would like. But you know, there's, I mean, it's been like Stephen said, eleven years, and it's it, it's just, it just doesn't seem like it's that important to them. And and it, and using the iPad as it is currently shipping is by far the most sane way to do it. Because when you try to make it do things, it's, they don't want it to do. You're, you're going to make yourself nuts, but I feel like we, we talk about this a lot on the show. Um, mm -hmm. are there any other areas that you would specifically like to see them improve on? Right. Um, no, I mean, I'll point to, there's a neat rumor that they are working on more multiple windows support. Um, and that's kind of exciting because sometimes as a researcher, I need to reference more than, more than two or three things at a time. Um, yeah. And so there's the multiple windows, there's the external monitor. Um, really, I'll be happy if I get background syncing. Um, but uh, I, I, I think it's overall, though, that philosophy that, like, let's think about the user as somebody who, yes, we want to protect when they're a new iPad user and they're just getting started. But as they level up, you know, let's take that concept of progressive disclosure and menus and interfaces and then also give users power and uh, adopt progressive disclosure as a philosophy to let people push through and accept risk and there's dignity in that. Yeah. I, I talk about this before, but I mean, I still think like the Microsoft surface studio was a great idea and Apple having um, Apple Silicon now is in the unique position of making a tiltable iMac that turns into a 27 inch iPad, you know, when mm -hmm. you tilt it down. I mean, I think that's something that could exist. I mean, who knows by the time Apple would get around to it, maybe we're all just wearing contact lenses and we don't have computers <laughs> anymore. I don't know. Yeah. But the, but, you know, I, I feel like they have the bones more than anybody in the in this game. You know, they own the operating system. They're so, so good at hardware. They could make some really um, revolutionary devices with everything they have. They have all the pieces if they would put them together. But, you know, I guess we'll see. I mean, 
let's see what kind of steps they take in June. Hopefully we all feel a little better about it after that. Mm -hmm. Fingers crossed. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Electric. Go to electric.ai slash MPU and unbury yourself from IT tasks. Get a free pair of Beats Solo 3 wireless headphones when you schedule a qualifying meeting. If you're listening to this show, chances are you know about technology. You know how it works and more specifically how to make it work for you. And that's great because if you're a business owner, it means you can create the systems you need to help your business grow. But it also means other people may rely on you for tech support, and and that's okay from time to time, but if you're growing a business, your skills and expertise are needed in other areas of the business, too. The team over at Electric knows small businesses, maybe like yours, face these challenges. That's why they've solved the problem for you by operating as your IT department. Instead of spending your time sorting through unused application licenses, setting up employee laptops, and answering never-ending IT questions from your team, you can build that empire and offload that job. With Electric acting as your IT department, you can get back to what you're good at. Plus, you get a really cool IT platform to see and manage everything. So if you're hesitant to delegate, you like to have control, I get you. That is a never-ending issue with me. I'm a control freak. I want to control everything. But I can tell you every time I've delegated something like this, the quality of my life has got better. And the quality of the things I really do, the thing that's most important, also improves. Back in my old law firm, I was the IT guy because I was a nerd and Everybody wanted me to help them with their tech, but they never really took that into account when they were looking at my billable hours. I would have loved to have something like electric back in that day. If you've got a small business and you're spending too much time dealing with tech, you should check out electric. And for Mac Power Users listeners, electric is offering a free pair of Beats Solo 3 headphones for taking a qualified meeting. Just go to electric.ai slash MPU. That's electric.ai slash MPU. Go there now to get your free pair of Beats Solo 3 headphones today for scheduling a meeting. Our thanks to Electric for their support of the Mac Power Users. All right, Ryan, one thing uh, we've danced around a little bit is that in your work, you are obviously taking a lot of notes. You spoke about Mm -hmm. how you use uh, OmniGraphle and other tools to make uh, more uh, visual note-taking and that sort of thing, but... Uh, we got to ask the question, and I I can't believe I'm the one to do this, but uh, like, what's a note, man? <laughs> I was supposed to ask you that question. That's why I put that in the show notes. So I was gonna <laughs> turn that around. Yeah, I I I want to chat about this because I think um, we tend to think pretty hard about what notes are. You know, we think of a note as a, a particular kind of file or something. Um, but I do want to advocate for this idea, and I gave a talk to this extent. Um, uh, that I have up on my blog. Um, but notes are really any kind of little, um, piece of information that information that we want to store and save and use later. Um, and so we hinted that we're going to be talking about recipes, recipe apps later on in the Mac power users or Mac, uh, more power users segment. And a recipe app is really a collection of notes about, you know, what meals you're going to make this week. Right. Um, and so the, what we're seeing in, present day is, I mentioned earlier, this idea that Devon Think has been powerful for 15 years. And yet lately we've seen the rise of Rome and Obsidian and Notion and LogSec and Craft and all these different tools. But what they all really are 
is uh, different ways of organizing whatever you think of as uh, useful information at, that, about your world, right? And that is, that's my PhD topic or my PhD field is information systems. It's, an information system is anything that helps you represent the world around you, whatever matters to you in that world, um, maintain that representation over time and interact with it. And so we're seeing some really neat advances in that uh, area right now in all these different apps. It doesn't really matter what app you use, but no matter what, you're thinking you're, you're thinking with these new tools um, and you're using notes in new ways. And that's really exciting. Yeah, there was a, something that Merlin Mann said probably 12 years ago on Back to Work. <laughs> and I think about it, uh, I think about it pretty often. And it was along the lines of, um, there's nothing that I won't write down. Uh, I forget the exact quote, but sort of the idea is there's nothing small, too small to track. There's nothing that's seemingly not important enough to like go in this precious new notebook I bought. And that idea has really stayed with me over the years that a note can be something as simple as two or three words or a screenshot or just something. I mean, sometimes especially on the go, I'll make a note as a placeholder to come back later, you know, as a springboard for further thought. And one thing that is cool about all of the, the apps and tools that we have, and we are really in a renaissance right now with these applications, is that it's so easy to do that when the only thing on you is your iPhone or even in some cases like with drafts, your Apple Watch, where you can mm-hmm. just quickly put a seed of something down and then come back to it later. Yeah, exactly. And it's all with that getting more programmable, right? With all of these different apps, we're seeing ecosystems of of um, plugins and extensions and scripts and um, even the underlying file system, right? One of the coolest things about a lot of these apps is that they are um, they have a kind of permissionless integration um, approach where you can just like take the content and get it into something else and use it um, without needing to worry too much about whether or not uh, another developer has has implemented an integration directly in. Um, and there's just something so powerful with that. And so, yeah, I, I just wanted to, to bring this topic up uh, in order to advocate for this idea that our notes, no matter what you're taking notes on, your notes are an information system and thinking about it as this system where it's not just the computer, not just the app, it's like how you interact with particular kinds of apps, particular kinds of workflows, for particular kinds of kinds of notes. Um, and something I've been thinking about recently. I, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but you know, there's that old idea of IQ, um, people get, gauging people's intelligence, but with these random skill testing um, exams. Uh, and I've done a formal IQ test um, when I was diagnosed with dysgraphia in grade 11. It's this weird um, abstract thing. But we've really been moving past the ability of IQ to predict something like intelligence or knowledge um, ability. Um, and with this new renaissance, you know, people are actually not just their innate intelligence, if you can even uh, use that idea, um, but people are their ability to use all these tools, too. So often I see, you know, in our circles, MPU uh, on MP- on the MPU forum and on automators and all these other places, people kind of make fun of themselves for switching back and forth in apps and using different kinds of tools. And yet, to me, all of those different practices really advance your skills as somebody working with knowledge, working with your notes. And that points to 
in my opinion, a new kind of IQ, some kind of new measure of your ability to innovate and to be um, impactful. And it's, it's, again, it's not just whatever you have, it's you plus how you work with these different tools. And that's really cool. It's exciting. Well, you know, I feel like the rise of all these applications is not coming from a vacuum. I mean, the best book I read last year was Annie Murphy Paul's Extended Brain extended mind book, you know, and Mm -hmm. the idea that, you know, we do need to have systems to manage this stuff externally. And we are living in a world that is far more complex and information dense than anyone, any humans have ever encountered. You know, Mm -hmm. I remember I talked about this in the paperless book, but when my parents died, I, they had a cardboard box with like my dad's discharge paper from the army. And like, it was like, you know, one cardboard box had their whole life in it of, of paper, you know, and that's like what we get in our mailbox every day now, mm-hmm. not to mention all the email and digital stuff that's thrown at us. And like, we have to manage this and, you know, you're an extreme version as a PhD student, but it doesn't matter if you're a plumber, you've got a lot more paper than plumbers did 50 years ago. And, oh, yeah. you know, we have to figure this out. And I think the reason why suddenly people are interested in linking and, and, you know, Devin think style database and all this stuff is because we don't have a choice. You know, this, the mountain is coming for us. If we don't have a way to navigate it, we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, I, I think this is a huge deal. I think it's something that everybody needs to be aware of and it's not a one size fits all problem. So, uh, you know, if you're giving yourself a hard time for trying different, you know, pants on here, no, you're doing the right thing. You got to find the pants that fit, you know? <laughs> and mm-hmm. so just, you know, it's fine. And, um, but I, I love the fact that you are like, in essence, making this your field of study uh, of how people process this and the workflows and the way it works. I mean, um, of course I wanted to have you on the show when I understood what you're doing. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. But the, um, but I do think this is something that everybody needs to struggle with and be aware of because the mountain is only getting bigger. I agree. And I think we use the term knowledge management um, and that kind of might make a lot of people feel like, oh, I'm not managing knowledge. But really, again, to reiterate that point at the top of this segment, if you take notes, which you do, because everybody takes notes, because everybody's, um, you know, trying to keep their grocery list or um, a book of recipes or information about their trade. Right. David mentioned plumbers like, my God, the kind of code. Um, regulations and instructions and different kinds of materials that um, people in trades need to keep up with these days. It's we're all knowledge workers, right? And so th- these tools really have a huge potential for helping people work with all kinds of knowledge and make the most of it. We talk about this stuff in relation to information retrieval or study of deep things like you know religion or you know whatever is important to you. But I can tell you earlier today I. I took my dog in to get groomed and I have a note that I track that. So when we're thinking, well, when is it time to go? When we go last, you know, that's just a little piece of information that I write down. It takes me a few seconds, but I always know, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, and I, I think that's kind of, I want to, I want all of that stuff external. You know, I want to use the synapses between my ears to come up with ideas and to make great things, not to remember when I got the dog's haircut. Exactly. Ryan, tell me, um, there's this, this thing I keep hearing that like, if we take notes by writing things down with a pen that we're going to remember them better than if we type them. 
Have you, has your study brought you into that question? I've always wondered if that's true or not. <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't know if I agree with the research that has been done on that because um, we are only studying people who haven't been using tech as the current generation has been, right? Um, and so this, it's like, to me, there's a potential selection bias in that if you're working with participants in these studies who have been using pen and paper from, you know, the age of four or five um, to do most of their work. And then eventually they switch into linked thinking or text-based or digital tools. Um, but we're, we're then asking them or testing their abilities to say, remember something based on whether they wrote it down or whether they um, typed it. I, I think there's probably a lot of inherent questions about um, again, that, re that relationship between you and the workflow and the tool and the content that can't really be tested in a lab environment, at least not yet. Um, so I haven't, I haven't looked into the scholarship, like don't, don't at me. Um, but I do worry that some of the work that we're seeing on this stuff is being, is per perpetuating some ideas that digital tools are inferior in some ways when perhaps maybe it's depends on how used we are to the tools themselves. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it, it does. And I also just don't like the idea of people coming up with a way to take notes and then everyone telling them they're doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is such a personal thing that each one of us has to figure this out for ourselves, which kind of leads to the next question. How do you, Ryan, J.A. Murphy, how do you take notes? I mean, what, what are the tools you use to keep track of things? Sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them have been mentioned already, but the... Uh, it's, for me, it's often the relationship between some reading, some reference, which is often saved as a PDF for me, um, in a bunch of annotations and sometimes in scribbles on the side using uh, stylus, um, and a bunch of uh, different, you know, markdown notes all over the place. And again, we're dancing around this this idea of obsidian, and uh, I shouldn't be using the word, but no, um, that's okay. We're, we're not going to get into how we use it because we've, yeah. we've we've been covering it too much. But yeah, yeah so obsidian is where you put footnotes okay yeah what about uh, when you want to capture something quick i mean obsidian's not great at that oh it still is for me i use uh I, I open it often enough on my phone that it's not that uh slow to sync up um i use icloud to, as a background for that um and and, I and you wrote a plugin called workbench exactly. of course i just remembered well, yeah <laughs> exactly this this the particular plugin that i use for this is called lumberjack because it's for logging your thoughts um but it's just a single button uses a url scheme and then saves a saves a new file um and uh, yet, you know, that same, so you, you mentioned that uh, you don't like when people uh, sort of have a dogma about this. And I agree with that. Um, and yet I'd also want to push back on that um, idea a little bit. I, I think there are some best ways, some, some best practices. And I don't have the answers, but I think we do need a lot more work and scholarship and practice in getting there. Um, so in my work, in my research, there's a field called design science and design science is about the science of design, right? If you have a design, how do you test it? How do you put hypotheses into the world about how exactly that design works? Um, and based on that idea, um, can you test those hypotheses and prove that there's a good idea or a bad idea about how to design this tool, right? And I think that applies to workflows as well. So we don't have answers yet, but I do think that we are getting to um, what one author called technological rules. In situations like X, where you're trying to do Y, you might want to try to do Z as an action. Um, and uh, I think what we're seeing with some of these theorists, say, um, the, um, the, the Tiago Fortes of the world, the, even the David Allens of the world, is that there are some principles that do seem to work fairly robustly across people and across use cases. 
And I think we need to test those more, but we can get to some pretty good ideas about how, how we should be working. It's a challenge. And, and because the technology keeps changing, that doesn't help anything. Mm-hmm. I, I have found personally that I've gone almost all digital on this stuff because I've played with the analog tools over the years. Um, I do journal with an analog journal sometimes, but not every day. But um, there's just something to the fact that you've got the iPhone in your pocket at all times. And if you can effectively capture and process with that, it, it's crazy when I think of the information I carry with me in my pocket now compared to, you know, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And we're getting, we're getting more and more powerful tools to be able to quickly and uh, uh, effectively organize and navigate all that um, via the software, right? Um, something I've been thinking of as like a, uh, maybe this is stupid, but softwareware um, is like, it's the the techniques that you individually develop to work with certain kinds of software that you re- keep going to over and over again. Yeah. It's almost automation, but it's things that aren't automated, right? Um, and I think uh, we're going to see more and more of that as these tools get refined and um, as we use them for years and decades. Yeah, especially tools that let you customize, you know, additional add-ons and things like um, like Obsidian does. Sorry, mm-hmm. Stephen. <laughs> no, but it's the, yeah, the, but I mean, it's not even that. I mean, like shortcuts is another great example mm-hmm. of what I would call software, using Ryan's term, in that mm-hmm. you can create an interface to, like, if you want to capture an idea to drafts, and you can create an interface that it, you're not writing software, but you are customizing the way it works. Exactly. Yeah, and you're you're coming up with patterns, right, in how you work with them. Um, again, it isn't always automation. Shortcuts is a good example, but say you're using something like Craft. If you keep a dashboard note, as uh, Vatici has talked about using in Obsidian, if you keep a, a dashboard note in Craft or in Notion, um, then you're using this concept of software. You're using a particular kind of workflow. But the neat thing is that the workflow depends on the app, and yet uh, it can be also agnostic. You can move it to other apps and. And it can still help you be that better knowledge worker. It, it feels to me, and I haven't really like figured this all out for myself yet, but two fundamental precepts if, of anything, if you want to explore this, or, or I guess two ideas that give you a lot of flexibility is number one, the tools you use are URL friendly. And by that, mm-hmm. I mean, you can link between them. We talked about it earlier with DevonThink. I mean, DevonThink is very friendly with other apps because you can link into it or out of it with anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing to me, I would think is as little as possible interference with the source data, the ability to, um, you know, to have data in one system that can be accessed in another system. And I'll use DevonThink again as another example of DevonThink makes it very easy to get your data out of it. Um, you can add some metadata in DevonThink that won't travel outside of the app, but in large part, like the annotations Ryan is doing in DevonThink on PDFs, that's going to travel with the file outside of DevonThink. And I think those are the two things you want, is the ability to link, the ability to move the data. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what I meant by the term permissionless integration earlier. It's like you don't want to have to ask or wait for somebody to develop something that lets you use your data and information and notes the way you want. Um, you want to find a way that you can always sort of work with the same subset, that same, um, call it a model, the, the, the ideas that you have in one place without duplicating it and making it redundant and but taking it across different apps and so on. Yeah, I'm spending a lot of time uh, right now in that space, I'm putting together the dates for my, I'm going to do another wall calendar this year, like I sure. did last year on Kickstarter. And 
one of the longest tasks last year was actually picking the dates to highlight, right? Because I have whatever it is, more than 40,000 things in dev. I think a lot of those have dates in them and trying to sort through what I want to highlight. And mm-hmm. a, a mistake I made last year was um, in the document, I've been using Apple Notes for this because I like the way their checklist feature works. Uh, I've been sure. you know, cataloging what dates I want to highlight. So in January, I went this date, this date, this date, this date, this is the day and year, and this is what happened, right? And when it came to fact check, Last year, I had to basically walk through all that research again and search for it and find it. And uh, this year, one of the things I'm doing to make that a little bit easier is I can link to my sources in DevonThink anywhere in my system because I can just get the URL for that item inside of DevonThink. And I can log those now next to the date. So say January 7th, 2003, Apple did this. And here are my three sources backing up that date. So when it's time to uh, fact check all of this, which um, is an important step in the process, uh, it it helps w- facilitate that a little bit better. You know, I'm not having to move those documents anywhere. I'm not having mm-hmm. to like copy and paste chunks of them into my list of dates. It's just a simple URL that brings me back exactly where I was. And it's going to save me just a... a a boatload of time when it comes to check all these dates. And not only with DevonThink, can you link to the document, you can link to the page. You can say, you know, go to this document page seven and it's going to go to that page. I mean, it's just, and this is kind of gets to my idea earlier about the, the importance of URL linking. Like uh, when I put a bill in OmniFocus, I'll put a link to the bill, you know, to pay the, property taxes because in california you got to pay them on a certain date but they send it to you like three months in advance right so i just put a link in the omnifocus task to the the bill that's in devon think and i'm just push one button and i go back to it when the time comes um but i mean that that those are very um everyday things but I, I guess I just can't say enough to people listening that i feel like this is the next tech survival skill we all need uh, we're overwhelmed with data. We need to build systems in our technology that allow us to fight against it and not feel like we're out of control. I hear from yeah. so many people that feel like they've completely lost control of this. And um, and the tools are suddenly emerging to help you bring order to the chaos. That's right. And Nick, you had Nick Milo on a couple of weeks ago, I think. Yeah. And uh, he he said something in a, another talk he gave that really resonated with with me, which is that you have to build these systems yourself. So this hints at that idea that you said earlier, David, that you can't really adopt something from somebody else wholesale. Um, you do need to kind of grow with these systems. Sure, you can see what other people are doing. Um, and I and again, I think there are best practices for certain kinds of workflows. And yet, uh, if you just try to copy what somebody else is doing, it's not going to be um, uh, symbiotic with you. And these things really are symbiotic. Um and so it's that's a really important flag. Maybe that if you're having trouble with this st- sort of stuff, maybe that's why. It's because you're trying to sort of stack things on top of what you're doing instead of integrating them in some deeper way by building it w- yourself over time. This episode of Mac Power Users is made possible by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform to build your brand and grow your business online. Build a beautiful website, engage with your audience, and sell anything, products, services, or even content. Squarespace has you covered. You can use insights to grow your business. Squarespace has amazing analytical tools 
So you can dig in to see where site visitors are coming from, how you're generating sales, what channels are most effective, and then you can take all that information and grow your business. So you get started with best-in-class website templates and customize them to fit your needs. It's easy as browsing a category of your business to find the perfect starting place, and you can customize it with just a few clicks. I love building on Squarespace. I've built a bunch of sites there over the years, some for myself, some for other people, and it's just a fantastic place to go because everything is under one roof. You're not going around and putting different components together. Squarespace has everything you need. Head on over to squarespace.com MPU for a free trial. There's no credit card required. When you're ready to go, use the offer code MPU. It's going to save you 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain name. Once again, that's squarespace.com MPU and the code MPU for 10% off your first purchase. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Mac Power users and all of RelayFM. Ryan, we always like to finish these interviews uh, asking our guests some of their favorite apps and services. Are there any that bring you particular joy or delight? Yeah, um, I really wanted to uh, think of a couple ones that I haven't heard on the show before, um, and I think I've got two. Um, so the first one is uh, if you're a fan of Breathe, the watch app, um, now called Mindfulness, I think. Um, there's an app called Pause. And it's iOS, but it actually, you can um, get it on the Mac and it's a bit wonky there, but it's kind of fun. Um, And it's this, the idea is finger Tai Chi. (laughs) And so it presents you with this little display and it says, touch the screen. So you touch the screen and then it says, it starts moving the dot and says, follow the dot. And the exercise is to slowly follow that dot around the screen as a mindfulness exercise. And I find it even more effective than breathe. It's like a really neat way of sort of trying to just take a second um, and with motion and with rhythm, uh, center yourself and uh, take a step back from whatever you were doing. And it's it's really sleek, really well designed. It was sort of defunct for a while. They weren't updating it, and it seems to have gone under new management, which means I think it's a subscription. I don't, I haven't looked into it too much because that that basic function still works for me. Um, but it's really wonderful, really elegantly designed. Yeah, that's cool. I've never heard of this app before. It's so neat. It's so peaceful. And then uh, any others? Yeah, sure. So the second one is um, uh, I've been curious about getting away from Google for a while. um, And the hardest thing to get away from with Google is, uh, well, some probably would argue Gmail, um, but I've managed to almost escape that with Fastmail. Um, But there's a new search engine in town called, I think it's Kagi, it might be Kaji, but K-A-G-I. It's in beta right now. You have to ask for an invite. It still kind of uses Google, but it's a private privacy-driven way of searching the Google index plus some other um, search engines. So Techless is another one and Bing is another one. It integrates all of those um, in the results it returns. Um, And so Kaki is pretty cool um, and it has been pretty robust. Every once in a while, I still fall back to Google, but they're growing really fast. They're one of those new teams who are building building quickly. And on top of that, they've also designed a browser called Orion that's based on WebKit. So it's very similar to Safari. It's faster than Safari in the tests that I've done. Um, and yet it has a lot of the same um, benefits that we love Safari for. And on top of that, you can install Chrome and Firefox extensions um, and use them with a WebKit browser. And it's available on uh, Mac OS iOS, and iOS. Again, still in closed beta, uh, but you can ask for an invite and get in there. And it's pretty sleek. Um, the extensions, Chrome extensions and Firefox extensions don't work perfectly yet, um, but I think they'll get there. 
Yeah, I feel like um, you know the extensions getting into Safari has not been as fast as I would have liked it to have been. I know yeah. Apple has made it easier, but it seems like it's still not going. It's not moving very quickly. Yeah, it's taking a bit of time for some of those tools, and I, I some of them I don't think we'll ever see, unfortunately, at this point, um, just because of developer um, inertia or something. But um, this will this provides a really neat way of people um, avoiding that and still using Safari and WebKit. Well, those are those are all great picks, Ryan. I'm going to have to check them all out. Um, <laughs> the uh, we've got a little more, but we got to let Ryan go, and uh, we want to thank you, Ryan, so much for coming on the show and uh, and giving us your time today. I am so interested in your topic of study and the progress of your career. Please keep us posted. We will Thank definitely you. be watching uniforms. We'll definitely have you back on the show at some point. And uh, uh, anybody who wants to learn more from Ryan, I strongly re- recommend you go to your RSS reader of choice. Maybe <laughs> it is Devin Think, mm-hmm. and set, go to Axel Design and sign up. I I always, you know, Ryan is a vi- high signal to noise blogger. Anything he puts up, I want to read. It, not not up every day, but it's good because everything you put up is quality, and I really appreciate that. So go check that out, gang. Uh, anywhere else people should go look for you, Ryan? Uh, you can find me all over the internet as Ryan J.A. Murphy, just so you don't mix me up with all the other Ryan Murphys in the world. Yeah, no worries. And and you know, good luck with everything, man. Thanks so much. All right. I know we talked about your new Mac Studio last week, Stephen, but you've got another week under your belt. Uh, any further impressions? Yeah, I've, I continue to be just really impressed with it. Uh, I have found a couple more sort of weird software things. So I think I mentioned in more power users last time that I've been having issues with uh, login items, things that were supposed to launch at startup weren't. And so after we recorded, I went through that system preference pane and I removed everything and just sort of added the things back. You know, they're mostly menu bar apps, right? I got a bunch of them like everybody else does. And uh, since sort of resetting it up, that's been totally fine. The things that I've told to be there uh, are staying there. So I don't maybe this is a little hiccup with the transition or with the migration yeah. or something. But after spending all of five minutes uh, telling macOS what I want at startup, uh, it has it's behaved. So that's good. The, are you still kind of in the honeymoon looking at the cute little piece of metal under your screen there? Yeah, well, I don't know if it's cute. Um but it is small, um, and we had some questions about the noise, and I think I talked about it a little bit, but I can hear it if I like sit really still and try to focus on it. But outside of that, I don't, I don't hear this thing. Um, yeah, I, I did a virtual meetup last week in the Max Berkey Labs, and there were four or five people there that had them. And nobody said that the noise was a problem for them. Yeah. One guy said that he has tinnitus and his old, I think it was a MacBook Pro, the fan noise w- would help offset the tinnitus. And now that the room is quiet, he, he almost <laughs> wishes it made some noise, you know. Oh, but no. The, uh, yeah, but a- the, uh, yeah, I know, weird, weird problem, but I get it. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I feel like the noise thing might be a little over um, overplayed, but, you know. If you get one and it's too noisy for you, take it back. I would say Apple's got a yeah. two-week return yeah. period. I've had I've had a week of production work on it now as well. So having edited and published a couple episodes of Connected, one of Ingenious, and some membership stuff, under load, it definitely isn't any louder. But boy, is it quick. And I was coming from a fast machine. I mean, the 12-core Mac yeah. Pro was no slouch by any means. 
but especially in things that are multi-threaded, this is just unbelievably good. So things like rendering a WAV file to an MP3 and forecast, for instance, which is something I do all the time. So I'm very familiar with how long it should take. It's really fast. Uh, same thing with bouncing or exporting out of Logic. So Logic has a feature called offline bounce. So back in the day, rewind, when you, if you had an hour-long audio file, it would take an hour to export because it had to play it in real time. And at some point along the way, Logic added uh, offline bounce, which meant, hey, export this as fast as the computer can do it. Don't worry about real time. Go faster than real time. And uh, other DAWs have added it as well. It's one reason I, I started using Logic back in the day was it had offline bounce when not many other things did. But uh, especially on, on Connected, which I edit, it's about an hour and a half long. It's about the same length as an MPU episode. Uh, I've really noticed how much faster it will export from Logic just to a WAV file out on the disk. And some of that CPU... Uh, some of that is also uh, SSD. In fact, uh, exporting and really doing anything with big media files, disk speed is a big factor in how long things take. And it's just so fast. Yeah. I mean, to the point of like, did that actually work? Like, is something broken? Did it fail? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah but there the it is. Chance. There's the WAV file sitting safe and sound where it's supposed to in Finder. I mean, it was when I started, because I do a lot of Final Cut renders and it was like so exponentially faster that I thought, well, I got to watch the whole thing to make sure there's nothing wrong here because that shouldn't have happened that fast, you know? But then also when it comes to like Final Cut and Logic, Apple Silicon is a big cheater, right? It yep. it like has subroutines written into the Silicon to make those apps run faster. So yep. of, of course it's going to run circles around Intel at that point. But anyway, well, I'm glad you like it. And uh, it, that's, I've heard, I've not had an experience from anybody that, didn't like their their studio mac so i'm glad i think that apple hit a homer here yeah and the mac pro is uh it's gone it's at its new home and shipping a 84 pound box was a real adventure but i got it done uh, yeah you know it is uh, one thing that i hadn't really considered was just the presence the mac pro has right anytime anybody came in here they'd say something about it it just took up a lot of space and i loved it like don't be wrong my favorite computer I've ever had. Yeah. Um, but now like the Mac studio is just tucked. It's under the, uh, the pro display. I'll have a link in the show notes to my gear page. I, I updated that uh, the other day to uh, make up for the fact that the Mac pro was, was gone. And you can see in the pictures, like if you're not looking for it, you don't even really see it. And there's something kind of nice about that. It's definitely not as clean as like the all in one, you know, the iMac, lifestyle that i still miss sometimes but it's pretty close and yeah you can definitely do it in such a way that's like very neat and tidy and i know for a lot of mac users you know we care about that sort of stuff that's one reason we're mac users and so yeah having this like little box where all the cables go out the back and it's all nice and neat like there's something to be said for that yeah totally totally well either way we are the mac power users you can find us over at relay.fm slash mpu uh, we gave links for Ryan earlier, but uh, he's just a, such a smart guy. I love yeah. having him on. Um, but you can find him at axel.design. And I meant what I said. He does a great job with his blog posts. Very thoughtful uh, gent. So go check that out. 
Um, and uh, thank you to our sponsors today, Sanebox, FitBot, Electric, and Squarespace. And uh, we'll see you next time.